Yeah, it's uh, the tendon is funny. Um, it's quite unique. Obviously, when we're in the weight room, if you typically train things heavy and slow, that develops the tendon one way. If you train it fast and ballistic, it kind of develops it another. Both are important. I would never avoid heavy and slow, put it that way. That was sports scientist Max Schmarzo speaking on different speeds of training and the impact on tendinous tissue. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Simply Faster. Simply Faster is an online athletic performance technology shop distributing items such as the free lap timing system, gym aware, K-Box, 1080 Sprint, and the Speed Mat. I've gotten many of these items from Simply Faster and can confidently say that they make today's best training technology available to everybody. The free lap timing system has revolutionized both my practices and my athlete assessments allowing me to look at the 10-meter fly capability of dozens of athletes in a matter of seconds. It is wireless, compact, portable, and incredibly versatile. The K-Box and 1080 Sprint are fantastic tools for any coach looking to build speed, agility, and implement training scenarios that go beyond the traditional weight room. The 1080 Sprint is being used by great coaches training some of the fastest sprinters in the world, and it truly represents high-performance speed training. I can personally attest that Simply Faster's customer service is second to none, Christopher at Simply Faster responds quickly to queries, and anyone who makes a purchase from Simply Faster is in good hands. If you want to acquire some of the best high-tech training equipment available, stop by simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. They are the future of coaching technology. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 114 of the Just Live Performance Podcast. Thanks for being here today. I'm your host, Joel Smith, and we welcome back to the show for a second appearance, Max Smarzo. He is the Director of Sports Science at the Resilience Code. He is the Chief Science Officer at Exergio Technologies. And many of you probably know him from his Instagram handle, Strong by Science, where he posts a variety of practical and scientific information that has garnered uh, tens of thousands of followers. Max is one of the smartest young coaches I know. Uh, I talk about this a lot, but I'm always just beyond stoked to welcome on the, this series a lot of these coaches in their 20s or very early 30s who are just making a huge impact in the field and really integrating the science, um, some of the up-and-coming systems like PRI and uh, into what they are doing. And it really is, uh, this is the future of our field. And I enjoy talking to a guy like Max, especially when it comes to getting into the nuts and bolts and the research and just more elements that help us to look at the training equation from a holistic view. And that's what we're going to get into today. Max is going to chat on the holistic adaptation of the body to stress. So basically beyond just a training program, what are some of the different factors in the body in terms of things like inflammation, immune response, the gut, um, stress that are making an impact on our athlete's ability to make gains, as well as us having a knowledge of some of these things and understanding how to properly program recovery modalities, not just haphazardly throwing them all in the same bucket of, of sorts, uh, or also understanding maybe what type of program to write based off where an athlete is at in terms of how they're adapting their caloric intake. And these these things are, are definitely no, they're a big part of the total system. And Max is so awesome with the science behind this stuff. And he really helps me out in, in becoming more 
full circle yet again. I always feel like this podcast has just been this series of rings expanding my own mindset and uh, knowing what causes athletes to adapt to a program. So uh, we're going to get into that. Uh, total topics, too. Uh, the theme really is adaptation on the level of the muscular and cellular level, the gut, uh, recovery, caloric deficit, nutrition. Uh, we're also going to talk about tendon adaptation, as you heard a little bit in the teaser, uh, which was a really cool piece and actually brought some things together for me in terms of understanding maybe what heavy or tempo, controlled tempo type work in the weight room does, uh, not only from a motor motor pathway or motor program uh, point, uh, but also impacts on the connective tissue of the body. And so uh, if you listen to the Randy Huntington episode as well, you, you understand just how important fascia is and the muscle fascia interaction when it comes to fast and explosive athletic movement. So the more that I learn about tendons, the more I'm just fascinated and the more I understand some of the effects that might be having it happening as a result of the training programs that I'm implementing. So that being said, let's get on to episode 114 with Max Schmarzo. Max, welcome back to the show. Thanks for being here, man. Thank you, Joel. A pleasure to be on again, and I uh, really appreciate you taking the time to uh, let me sit down and chat with you. Yeah, hey, it's it's always good, man. Um, you know, it's funny, too. I feel like you're... Your background is a little bit of a mystery, right? For the longest time, you were strong by science, and people didn't know who you were. And then, <laughs> uh, what's I mean, what's been what's been new in the last year since you were on the podcast <laughs> last time? Uh, quite a bit. Um, so I guess my official background: I'm an athletic trainer, ATC. I have my CSCS, did my graduate degree, so I have uh, ex phys grad degree, uh, master's in science. And now I'm working as the director of sports science at Resilience Code, and I'm also the chief science officer at Exergo Technology. So a couple new endeavors I've taken on since then. Oh, yeah. That's fantastic. Uh, and so, yeah, I just want to dig in a little bit to some sports science uh, ideas and topics, but also just some, some practical applications that run through it all. And so today, one of the things I really wanted to get into, and I think about this a lot because, like, you know, we all throw different training programs at athletes. Uh, different styles, different types of waves, or whatever you're, um, whatever you're using to cause an adaptation, be it variety or volume or things like that. But I wanted to get into the processes that impact how we adapt. And uh, so, what are the first question is what are different body processes that impact the way that we adapt to exercise, a strength training program, a speed training program, whatever we're trying to get better at? Um, what are we looking at there? Yeah, that's. An extremely detailed question. Um, I'm not going to go diving into the exact molecular signaling pathways because I'd probably do it a disservice. And I'd probably say something wrong and then get trolled on. So I'll take care of that in advance and pass on that. Um, but in regards to the specifics of how the body works, is it's essentially a stress response. We all know that. We've all seen that famous curve of a system gets stressed. Um, then we have a process in which we try to rebuild from that stressor, and that requires certain energetic demands, which is then facilitated by certain biological pathways. So if you look at the body in the terms of systems biology, your body is not a bunch of isolated parts, right? You have your muscles have things called myokines that get released. They go and talk to your brain. Your brain sends, obviously, nerve signals and releases hormones to your muscles. The gut takes place. Um, so different actions take place in the gut, and your gut actually produces hormones and things that happen in the muscle can affect the gut, 
things that happen in the gut can affect the muscle. Long story short, a lot of things are happening at once to get a result. So if we're looking at specifically like a muscle and how we adapt there, from the most cellular level, you're looking at like something along the lines of reactive oxygen species and inflammation, um, leading the charge to signal the body that we need some sort of adaptation. From there, the body orchestrates several mechanisms to then provide the adaptive response. And that is where you start to see the balance between you know, proper adaptation, where someone has the bioenergetic um, stores and ability to restore, but also you see kind of that chronic overtraining syndrome where someone begins to have an inflammatory cascade and they have something go out of hand where next thing you know, the accumulation of fatigue occurs over time and they don't adapt like they should. So when you start looking at it from a big picture standpoint, right, it's obviously we give them a workout, they respond, they get better. Um, at a cellular level, there's a bunch of events that take place regarding certain cellular signaling pathways. But ultimately, to sum it all up, it's a stressor, it's a response, and how our body handles that. Uh, Max, you mentioned something I thought was interesting that I've been thinking about a little bit is is the role of the gut in adaptation. And like something I've always felt is in terms of even just something like gaining muscle mass and packing on muscle mass and some athletes have a lot harder time with it than others but in terms of signaling from the gut what is that um, how does that play a role digestion absorption signals that type of thing i know functional medicine you, you have a lot of experience with that now and uh, the gut's just such a big topic but uh what are some ideas and primers from that direction of things yeah so to, before i go into that so i preface this i do work heavily with um Dr. Chad Prusmack, and we have at our facility a registered dietitian, and we work with different functional medicine interventions to help provide individuals specific um, outlines and plans to get what they need. So, and we, that's kind of where my background's coming from. And so I might uh, kind of glaze over some topics here, but obviously they're all very important. In regards to the gut, um, the actual gut itself, people think, oh, it's your stomach, right? It's where we hold food. Obviously, it's much more detailed than that. We have our small intestine, our large intestine, different bacterial growths and microbiomes within those intestines. They can migrate up too far and cause issues. They can cause leaky gut. They can cause different issues in absorption based on our actual microbiome and whether or not we're getting conversions of short-chain um, short fatty acids and certain signaling pathways that occurred there. Long story short, to not dive into all of that specifics, um, we can have issues in how we digest and how we react to different foods, right? Certain people have allergies to foods, but certain people have reactions to them or sensitivities to them as well. So just because you don't eat a food and vomit doesn't mean it's not causing some disruption, right? If you look at gluten, for example, um, people say, oh, you know, you have to have celiac disease to have this massive um, kind of inflammatory response to gluten, and yes, um, that's true, the massive response, but at times, right, you have gluten, which comes into the gut and gets broken down to gliadin, which then becomes and stimulates zonulin, which then leads to gut permeability, which leads to inadequate absorption. So if an individual who's eating a um, diet that best fits them, whether they know it or not, might have more optimal adaptations in the stomach, sorry, in the microbiome, which leads to better absorption rates and better processing, while someone who doesn't have that, you know, I guess, optimal diet for them, and they don't even know it, it could be causing some gut dysbiosis. It can increase IL-6 markers, and all of a sudden you have systemic inflammation. There's actually a good number of research out there 
looking at the effects of systemic inflammation um, in older adults as well as trained athletes such as taekwondo's and its role in muscle adaptation and those who have already a high level of inflammatory burden aren't able to adapt to incoming stressors the same way than an individual who obviously has a lower inflammatory burden and that's kind of like Joel we talked about earlier before we start this podcast the last straw on the camel's back when something goes wrong we go oh my gosh that happened because of you know, he broke his wrist or I guess he sprained his wrist because of X, Y, and Z, or he has a runny nose because of X, Y, and Z. That's always the end product. But what are the cellular cascades that took place that led to that end product is what we're kind of diving into at Resilience Code here. Yeah, I, I think that stuff is fascinating because it's always really easy to kind of, uh, whatever mental shortcut you create to say why an injury happened, you know, it's easy to, it's very easy to just pick something out you don't like maybe an element of biomechanics that you're you think is wrong or something like that and say well of course that's why they did that but I got, we, I, got, no I got a funny anecdotal story for you I, I think it's funny um, one of my interns um, Drake and I give him a shout out on this because he'll laugh when he listens to this he's a big fan of this podcast Joel so um, uh, he uh, <laughs> he doesn't have a high carb diet um, he went on a kind of a higher fat diet and then he went on a very heavy power train cycle and then uh, all of a sudden, two weeks later, he just looked absolutely exhausted. And this is a guy who's very fit, former football player, very strong individual. Um, but I was like, you know, what's going on with you? And he's like, oh, you know, I've been on a high-fat diet. I don't want to eat carbs. And funny enough, we were just diving into some research about how if we don't have adequate glycogen stores, you have an increase in epinephrine response. An increase in epinephrine response, obviously, is higher sympathetic drive. Um, that also can lead to a higher epinephrine to receptor ratio showing desensitization to epinephrine. Um, so people call that like central nervous fatigue. Basically, he couldn't get up and ready to go to train. Um, and he was knocking everything over at work and spilling coffee twice in one day. Um, he went and ate a bunch of food, healthy food, obviously, and gave him a week and he can't kind of bounce back. But it was a great example of how if I was just a coach and I put my program in and he didn't respond, I would blame myself. I'd say, oh my gosh, my program was way too much for him. But really, if I don't understand his adaptive capacity, right, what are his glycogen stores like, what's his nutritional intake like, then how could I possibly blame myself when I'm not turning over other stones that I need to look at in order to better understand what the heck optimal actually is? Because optimal for him might have been much less volume due to the fact that he's on these weird dietary restrictions because he's been a knucklehead. Um, <laughs> when if he was eating maybe more carbs, um, maybe an adequate nutrition, he could have blunted some of the uh, desensitization that might have occurred, or that's kind of our hypothesis of what had occurred. Sure. Yeah, I, it reminds me, I, a podcast I used to listen to a year or two ago uh, was called the Optimal Performance Podcast. I listened to it uh, quite, quite a bit. I think Ryan Muncy is the host, and there was an episode where they were talking about the keto diet being like they were giving examples of basically people's strength levels dropping like you're going to get lean but their strength levels also dropped like their strength and power markers and so how you would explain it right there actually was really helpful and coming full circle with that a little bit i mean i i try a modified version of it it's not it's not even close to keto diet, but uh, <laughs> I can definitely i can definitely see that you don't get me started on that because first off our societal understanding of keto is no carbs. It's actually like 80% fat, 10% um, protein, 10% carbs. So it's not 80% protein, 10% fat, 10% carbs or no carbs, whatever uh, people may think it is. So 
and also when you start thinking about keto and you talk about brain health and you talk about the impacts of it for concussion and some of those isolated studies, those aren't individuals who are highly trained athletes who are working out six times a week in a highly anaerobic state. So make sure when you're looking at that literature, understand then the literature that ties back to you to the events that you're actually doing. Um, we do actually recommend keto at times here at our facility. Um, it's typically not for an athlete. Um, and it's typically because they can't control their carb intake, right? It's not necessarily because keto is the best. I would love for them to have um, a mixed diet with uh, different, you know, healthy carbs. But if the individual is going to be susceptible to eating Snicker bars all day because that's his carb outlet, I think it's best served to sometimes reduce or remove all carbs and then build the house from a good base and then re-educate and reintroduce carbs back into the process. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. No, that's that's awesome way of putting it. Like, yeah, if you can't, I, I, my, my wheels are almost turning because I, I really like what you just said. But I mean, yeah, we all know those athletes who just can't handle it, right? Like who just can't handle good carbs. And it's like, it's almost like you're just picking the lesser of two evils in some sense, it, just to be able to give them good, healthy habits, even if you maybe sacrifice a little strength or power in the short term. Long term, it's probably going to come back, and they're going to be really good once they can put good carbs in the system. It's yeah. Habit creation. Yes, it's like understanding too, right? So if they're going to go on a higher fat diet, maybe I should reduce their training volume. Maybe I should reduce the amount of anaerobic demand. Maybe knowing what my intervention is going to cause, I should now under my dietary intervention, I should now modify my exercise intervention because ultimately, if I'm trying to balance the mix of inflammation to adaptation, if I'm pouring more inflammation into my inflammatory bucket, which is basically all your body can handle, well, of course, I'm going to have chance for overspill and someone get overtraining. You can look at like the immuno function of the human body in response to exercise. Some exercises lead to immune suppression acutely and then a, you know, a boost in the immune response. Well, a little bit um, at sometimes can introduce a very acute um, I guess a positive immune response and you can look at redox states within the mitochondria. So redox states are these um, uh, Not to dive too far into it these things that are responsible for taking care of mito um, Reactive oxygen species reactive oxygen species are what basically keep us alive and they're also what people assume kill us They're responsible for aging and adaptation our redox system things like glutathione um, superoxide dismutase catalase are responsible for taking up these reactive oxygen species and when we train we have um, kind of a flushing of reactive oxygen species and it hinders our redox system but when controlled properly our redox system gets stronger which is why guys who train a lot and logically are healthier um, and there's tons of benefits for it at the same time, those who train too much, you're going to have your redox system, which are responsible for reactive oxygen species, be reduced, and then you pour more reactive oxygen species into it because that redox system hasn't recovered. Next thing you know, you're stimulating IL-6, which leads to a cortisol response, and which leads to, when then excess, a bad feed-forward system, possible gut permeability, which then increases more inflammation. Um, Again, a lot of this is kind of connecting dots and understanding not every single person is going to respond this way, but understand that each biological system and subsystem talks to each other. You don't get to wreck your muscles 
and have you know, your blood pressure not change. Right? <laughs> That's yes. not how that works. Um, you don't just get to, you know, if you stub your toe there's, or break your foot, there's a reason why you don't sleep well at night. It's, they don't work in isolation, yet when we train people, there's a lot of thought that if my training intervention didn't work, right, it must have been the training intervention. Well, maybe it's not the training intervention. The training intervention should be the only thing um, should fit, I guess, the adaptive capacity of that human being. But you can also modify the adaptive capacity by making sure we do certain things properly, right? Are we um, eating properly? Are we sleeping properly? And people, I hate this term so much, recovery. The term recovery is the most nebulous term that doesn't make any sense to me. Because when I sit in an infrared sauna compared to cryotherapy, they are two different responses, completely two different ones, right? If I sit in a cryotherapy, Right, I tank my um, like IL-6s, I have a blunting of the inflammatory response, which means I'm not going to have, uh, possibly, the muscle adaptations that might occur. That's fabulous if it's the day before a game. Because you wanna play the game, you don't care about getting jacked. Mm -hmm. But if it's the day after the game, and you wanna treat that game as a received stressor for adaptation, right? maybe understanding, okay, an infrared sauna, which increases growth hormone response, um, would be more beneficial despite the fact that they're not going to recover by tomorrow. It's going to take a couple of days. But if we're on a football schedule and we're playing once a week, then I understand how to fit it in together. If I'm on a basketball schedule and I play back-to-back -back games, hell, maybe I have them train, sorry, maybe I have them play, and then I have them cryo, and then I have them play again because I understand I need to get them up and ready. But long-term cryoing every single day, Dumping yourself full of vitamin C after a workout is a great example. They have a cellular study looking at when someone pounded vitamin C right after a workout, it boosts your redox system. It gives it a lot of strength. But that's not what you want. You want to adapt. And so those groups of people that had that actually didn't have um, the VO2 increases as the other groups. And that's because there wasn't stressed. There was no need for mitochondrial biogenesis or a development of a redox system. Um, granted, some of those papers are a little controversial, but the concept makes sense. Um, if you really want to dive into it, you can start talking about different mitochondrial uncoupling proteins and how if someone um, has different spikes in VO2 or reductions in VO2 and the ATP pathway in which the mitochondria actually produces ATP is a, um, it's an average. So not every mitochondria produces 38 ATP like we read in a textbook. Right? We have these things that poke holes in our mitochondria and uncouples them and it becomes less efficient, so it actually burns more calories per ATP made, and it actually heats up the mitochondria, um, and obviously heat being one of those factors that possibly leads to fatigue, which would be a safety mechanism in the human body. Um, not to dive too far on a tangent, and I'll reel it back here, um, but ultimately appreciating the fact that there's a lot of different things going on. I know we started with the gut in this question, <laughs> and I went south. Um, but it's very important to me. I'm very passionate about this side because I was very um, ignorant to it. I'm, I'm an athlete. I played college basketball, and I was a guy who I didn't recover. It means I didn't train hard enough, right? I was more, more, more. Um, but understanding what more is is, I guess, uh, an important aspect of it. Sure. And, yeah, that's all really fascinating, especially with, like, the icing I mean, I suppose that would, would that also fit, like you said, cryotherapy, is that just icing in general or like standing in the, isn't it like, the, there's like that cryo um, booth, <laughs> if you will, or what kind of, uh, yeah. is there a specific type of icing there that you were referring to? 
Um, yeah, the, the, the debate on typical icing when you put an ice pack on, the literature is not terribly great with it doing much. Mm-hmm. It's typically cold water immersion. Um, so whether that be cryo or full body immersion, I should say, whether it's cryo or hopping in an ice tub, um, I don't think icing an ankle would cause too much of a issue. Yeah, it totally reminds me of just the podcast I did with Rick Brunner. Like we, and it, just in general, like the first time I heard someone say "don't ice a sprain," I think it was Dick Hartzell, actually, the rubber band man, that guy who invented all those jump stretch bands, and he'd like he would jump off of a table on the side of his ankle and he wouldn't sprain it and all this stuff. He was like sixty <laughs> years old, it's crazy. But I, it was him or somebody else as well. As like, and this, I remember this when I was in grad school. I remember being convinced that ice wasn't really that helpful in in injuries and, and those types of things in terms of you want some in level of inflammation like and we just are in this mode where like we have to blunt everything the body's doing and uh rick was I mean, you're at atc so you probably be able to speak to the exact um the specs better than i but i just remember rick too talking about like if you're gonna do a workout from a nutrition standpoint you don't want to put anything in your system that's going to blunt um the inflammatory response during the or, or at least the, yeah, I think it was the inflammatory response during the workout because you need like that to signal the, the growth processes and the recovery processes. Yeah, so why ice was so accepted initially because it has an analgesic effect, right? You can ice your knee and you can do movements on it and you don't associate those movements with pain. Hmm. So it might not actually help at the cellular level for the adaptive response. But there's a neuromechanical mm. coupling to the brain where your brain associates this knee angle with pain, which is the same reason why isometrics typically work very well in rehab as well, because you create this um, acute analgesic effect, this window of 30 minutes where I can do this without pain. So you re-educate the body to not um, associate that range of motion with pain. So what we can do actually is you can have a metronome on your phone. Um, if someone's dealing with like tendinopathy, if they were to focus on the tempo of an external metronome, it removes their attention from their knee and it re-educates the nociceptive pathway, what people kind of call it, the nociception, right? I feel pain, but there isn't pain. It's actually like the neuromechanical coupling up into the brain, which associates that area with pain. If they can divert their attention to something else, such as now focusing on a metronome, tick, tick, tick externally, not something they're thinking, then they can begin to re-educate that range of motion without pain. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's, that's like super fascinating stuff. I, I, cause it makes sense to me. I remember back in the day I was, I was athletic training for two years. I only made it two years and I switched. Um, <laughs> but I, I just remember like, you know, icing on a stretch was the big thing. Like, Oh, ice on a stretch, ice on a stretch. And yeah, what you're saying, it makes sense. It's just, you're going into a, maybe a range you wouldn't like, but you're icing it. So it's almost more, I guess you could call it mental, but I mean, there's obviously more, um, there's there's better ways to say that uh but no totally i i totally agree with you there i think that's really interesting i not to go on a tangent myself but it kind of made me think a little bit of in the there's a the the db hammer innosport world that whoever whoever db yes. hammer was yeah icing, i was thinking about that yes too. yes icing <laughs> and plyometrics icing plyometrics that's, it'd be interesting to see like a, a cbd oil substitute right because if you had cbd which obviously the analgesic effect I'm not sure the legalities of it everywhere. I'm in Colorado, so um, yeah. Not promoting, not promoting this. This just why sports podcast does not promote this. Uh, what Max is about to describe here. It's the conceptual aspect of an analgesic effect without having like an NSAID, where you have this tears up your gut and actually tears up your tendons and does more harm than good. 
Yeah, that but yeah, that was it was just crazy though. Yeah, because the the icing, I guess it desensitized the muscle spindles. So now your body or brain had to. It's almost like a constraint, right? Like, okay, now my muscle spindles are less, or or my muscles themselves are less responsive and adaptive, and so I have to use my tendons. My brain has to figure out a way to use more out of my tendon system. And I think the the trick was that it improved your stretch, your you know your highest level elastic or static spring. I've never tried it. It just was intriguing to me. I wasn't. It's not something that I was about ready to go do with my athletes, but I mean, it sounded it sounded interesting. Maybe maybe with my interns someday, um, I'm sure that'd be a nice project. We've done some interesting stuff. Um, I know Chase Phelps at Stanford has um, there's actually two experts there. I I do not remember their names. I apologize. They're awesome professors, but they looked at cooling through different modalities of um, how we cool. And actually really cold water isn't the best because it actually constricts your veins, right? If your core temperature is, what, like 101, you don't need negative two degrees, <laughs> right, to make you cold. If you have 90 degrees, it's colder than 101 or 103 if you're, I guess, really high. And so different pathways to actually cool the body um, keeps it vasodilated so the cold, the cooler blood can actually get to these areas. Um, and that improves work capacity because it helps downregulate some of the heat, and the heat actually might be the thing that causes fatigue uh, through different cellular mechanisms. So, kind of cool. Yeah, no, that that certainly is. I, I, the whole like the cold, cold, hot paradigm is is something I've always been really interested in. Uh, Max, I wanted to go back actually to something you had mentioned. You were talking about different types of exercises having a different impact on like the immune the the immuno uh, profile of an athlete. And it got me thinking a little bit about uh, days we would term like recovery days. Like some people would be, if you're in the, like the Charlie Francis system, right? You got your three big days on the week, nervous system days, you're sprinting, you're lifting. A lot of strength programs would follow that, that same system too, that same kind of paradigm. Uh, and then in the middle, you have more of your recovery or tempo days. And I think there's, there is a few people who would, would say, okay, well, maybe you don't even really need those days. Maybe you don't need tempo days or you do circuits or different things, but what um, can you go into a little bit to what different types of the, the impact some of those or what some of those different types of exercises are? There you go. Um, that that have that impact and as so, well as some of the differences between like a high neural demand day and maybe an, an easier day and what's happening in the body. Yeah, I'm going to preface this by saying I had recently done a conference with Corey Schlesinger, who is a big um, utilizer of microdosing. Uh, he's been using it for three years with his teams. And him and I got into a long discussion about uh, how that affects the immune system. You know, if you're doing it for 20 minutes in season, is it more detrimental to actually skip a day for your body um, versus actually doing it? So that kind of led to the answer we're going to have here, where if you have that high, high intense day, and then you follow it up with a more aerobic um, submaximal day, right? The high, high intense day is going to stress the system in a totally different way. The lower intensity day will. Um, obviously dependent on the individual as well. So if one individual had adequate nutrient intake after that high, high power day, um, which we call like a lot of neural drive, um, a lot of fast twitch, a lot of demand on the sarcoplasmic reticulum, um, and obviously fast anaerobic glycolysis and the creatine phosphate. If they have adequate nutrition, then what their recovery day might look like would be totally different than the other guys. Ideally, if you're going to group people, I really do see the aspect of banking on individuals not being adequate on their nutrition <laughs> because I'd rather aim low um, and be safe 
than being like, oh, you guys are all fueled up, you're ready to go, let's crank it for another hour and a half. Um, so that high-low model fits well with a lot of individuals who have those abilities to take those longer breaks. But when you look at models of individuals in season, like a basketball team where you have two games in a week, it's how much of a break can you actually take and how much is it just small manipulations from day to day. So I kind of hopefully answered that and went on a little bit of a kind of a left turn, but um, the exact physiological response um, between a high, high demanding day and then a lower like tempo days, right? Charlie Francis yeah. used those as recovery. And you start to look at it and you're like, oh, that, that actually makes a lot of sense, right? Because all of a sudden they're turning the system on, you're getting some sympathetic activity but you're also allowing enough recovery. It becomes almost more aerobic in nature, and you're not putting the demand on the glycogen that maybe might not be restored, but you are stimulating the muscle, so if you then have adequate nutrient intake, maybe you'll store more glycogen that day, so it prepares you for the following. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, so that if, if I had an athlete who had basically ate a, a higher calorie diet, or if you're in a low calorie diet, you, you really can't afford to do the that long, lower intensity day is just going to kind of mess you up, just period, pretty much. Is that, I mean, from a black and white perspective? Uh, yeah, I mean, if if anyone's in a caloric deficit, they're already in trouble, right? A caloric deficit causes autophagy in your body. So it basically breaks down cells. Um, and it uh, doesn't allow, sorry, it breaks down cells um, and then it acts as a stress on the body itself, which is actually good at times because it breaks down the bad cells and you build new ones that help you live longer. And there's been a lot of studies showing that having a caloric deficit leads to better longevity. Performance and longevity do not go hand in hand. There's nothing healthy anyone told you about being the Olympian. All right, there's nothing innately healthy about being the best athlete there is. Um, with that being said, anytime you're in a caloric deficit, right, that's a stress in of itself. So obviously the next day they won't be able to respond the same way. Um, but then looking at the macronutrient demands as well, did that person um, have adequate carb intake and protein intake post-exercise kind of thing? Yeah, so I mean, that's really interesting. I think that it's just like so easy to just look at just yeah, the window of training, days, sets and reps, high intensity, low intensity, and, and really uh, not ever take a step back and look at the big picture. I wanted to get into a little bit, so we talked a little bit about like the high-low, just kind of like a low, more aerobic day, a high neural day, but one of the things I also wanted to talk about was just from a perspective of the idea of general strength and general training. So doing like a lot of high variability, basic body weight movements, stuff with dumbbells, kettlebells, just getting in, or a GPP as we know it in its purest sense. And one of the interesting things that I've heard uh, in, in reference to that was that that stuff could be like an antivirus. Uh, from from the more specific and intense training and that was I, I think from Derek Evely like if you're doing a lot of hammer throwing specific a lot of special exercises then some of the general really low level work was an antivirus from that and what's your what's your take on that thought uh, from the kind of the spirit of what we've been talking about so far yeah I want to take it from a little bit of a different approach I think it's super useful from the fact that you're putting different loading vectors on the body. Um, obviously, when you're doing something very specific, there's only so much room to do something specific, right? If you wanna work on jumping from the most specific standpoint possible, you're gonna do things that require jumping, right? And you're gonna get a lot of overload on those tissues, um, something like a tendon, 
takes like 72 hours to adapt. So if we keep hammering specific and specific, specific, especially high velocity specificity, you're leading or setting yourself up for some type of right um, overuse injury, whether it be a tendinopathy or something go wrong um, at a tendon muscular level. But when we add these GPP exercises in, it's a way to still stimulate the adaptive response to the body. Yes, it's general, but it's also allowing you to load in different vectors, um, thus avoiding some of the specific vectors, but still getting a training response. So if someone has um, better ability to generally function, right, and they're not just all wound up, that's why people right, get sore backs when they sit on a chair all day, but they don't get sore backs when they get to walk around and move things. If I'm a if I'm a guy working my computer, my my SPP right is typing on a computer and sitting on a chair. But we need human GPP to avoid some of those overuse issues and develop some of the supportive musculature that we might not think about. In the same fashion that using GPP for athletes, okay, we did something very specific yesterday. I know their tendons were under heavy load in the specific range of the motion. Now the next day, if we do something more GPP based, that's general. And obviously general and controlled, not anything that's going to tax them like crazy. It's going to promote the adaptive response, right? You're going to have a positive effect at a biological, like cellular level, but those specific tendons aren't going to face the overuse that you might. So it allows you to train without having to run that risk of overload, making it that antivirus. I love that term. Yeah, it's it's a really good one. I. I like how, well, a couple of things. I, I, I like the idea too of like, if I just sat all day for me, what gets my back the worst is just standing all day. Like I remember when I was at, when I was coaching track full time at college, I would stand a lot at track meets and that was like the worst thing I could ever do for my back. My back hurt way more than I used to work moving in the summers and would just carry boxes all day up and down stairs and all this stuff. And my back was never sore after that, but just just standing was killer. And so it's like, I, I know too, one thing I really liked that you said was you, you mentioned that you talked about the tendons more than anything. Could you explain how that's like a, a really big deal with that stuff? Yeah. Tendons don't adapt like muscles, at least the speed at which they adapt. Um, the adaptive period is a little longer and the supplementation can be a little bit different. You might see something along the lines. I just came off of um, a bad knee issue and when you integrate proper tendon loading, whether it be through isometrics, then starting out with something heavy, moving to something more dynamic, eventually getting into your sport, um, the tendon response takes like roughly 72 hours. So if I know that, right, and I know that if I did something really heavy tendon loading and then I add collagen supplementation, whether it be through bone broth or supplements or collagen high, um, high collagen foods, add some vitamin C into it when it's properly timed to increase collagen synthesis, and then maybe another load that evening with a slight dynamic movement in my knee. Now I'm adding kind of a bolstered attack to it. Um, and now I know I have a 72-hour window where I'm still going to increase my collagen intake. But when I have now, this is for my specific knee example, by the way. This is very anecdotal, um, but scientific as well. Then we have other activities that aren't going to be such high in tendon load, right? Because the tendon itself doesn't respond the same way muscle. The um, it's not made up by the same material at all, right? Yeah. <laughs> you could dive into it at a cellular level. It does not look like a muscle. It doesn't adapt like a muscle. Um, the way it adapts is different. You can look at a tendon through ultrasound. It can look like a mess, but it can function just fine. Um, it doesn't cause pain. You could have a normal tendon that causes pain. So tendons are kind of funny in how they work.
You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, I. it makes me think, as I was, I don't remember if this is in my new book or not. I know I was reading Robert Schlipp's fascia book, the compilation with those different authors, and which was a really cool piece. Actually, maybe I was reading that in preparation for a, a talk I gave at some seminar, but like, one of the things that stood out to me was the like it was like the peak degradation of the tendinous tissue actually was like a day and a half after the the point where you did that exercise that caused it and i'm like okay well now this whole two day i'm the worst it's like you're sore one day after but then two days it's even worse and we're like oh my god um like that kind of made sense to me in in that regards and i was like okay because there was also something in that book where along the lines of like it's in our fascia our connective tissues where we actually feel uh, soreness more so than like the muscles themselves we don't feel like the muscle itself ripped apart and we felt it or something was what the book was getting at and so that was a big eye-opener for me in the way that I thought about that and, and just how you were describing it too in terms of loading and we think about tendons in the lines of loading and fascia that now that the pieces start to come together I, I think that's really cool yeah it's uh the tendon is funny um it's quite unique Obviously, when we're in the weight room, if you typically train things heavy and slow, that develops the tendon one way. If you train it fast and ballistic, it kind of develops it another. Both are important. I can't say that doing um, nothing heavy and slow is right. I would never avoid heavy and slow, put it that way. Hmm. Uh, heavy and slow can help build that base and that tendon integrity for you to perform more ballistic stuff. So if I was looking at a general um, like a tendinopathy kind of care, you would progress it from isometrics to tempo work to heavy, um, heavier tempo works or probably heavy eccentrics with the tempoed heavy concentric. And then eventually you'd want to do the more dynamic movements because you're developing um, that elasticity of the tendon. But when you have something like a constant contraction, it actually keeps the tendon taut. So when we're tempoing up, like an isometric, we're obviously locked down that tempo. Um, isn't existent, right? We're just pressing against something and the tendons being strained at that angle. But then we do like a tempo eccentric and a tempo concentric, the muscle fascicle lengths are changing a whole bunch while that tendon's locked in and you really strain it for it to get that adaptive response. But then when you progress into something more dynamic, that ability um, to express is obviously different, but we get wear and tear there and maintaining um, some of those healthy kind of tendon programs where we're keeping some heavier tempos in there, right? To look at it from, okay, maybe my athletes don't perform that movement in sport. I get it. But what does it do from a support structure standpoint? Am I building a stronger suspension on my car so I can go faster, right? I want a big engine to go fast. I want great wheels, but if I have a crappy suspension, I'm not going to be able to handle any bumps or turns. Yeah, it's almost like I'm thinking about like the performance and longevity paradigm you were talking about too, which was awesome, by the way. I feel like the the people who live over a hundred, it's like I I don't think or recollect like they're like, oh yeah, I played you know pro sports and I was an <laughs> athlete for so long, and but I I almost think of it too because I it's weird, man. Like I've had success, and, and maybe some of it's the motor learning too. I do believe it, and I've talked with like Jerome Simeon about this stuff, but like doing like a 505 tempo or 303 on a movement like a deficit deadlift or a front squat. I mean, I've noticed like vertical jump gains are doing that stuff in the short term, uh, which motor learning may be a strong part of it, but I, and, and obviously the tendons, I mean, it's it's almost like it's resetting the tendons or it's like it's providing a break for the tendons like we were talking about. It's an antivirus for the tendons when you're doing the isometrics and the and the slow stuff. Would that be a good way of putting it? Yeah, it allows you to then perform more dynamic stuff. Um, 
it doesn't need to be the the performance KPI, right? How heavy does something move? But we all know that there are obviously tons of benefits of something heavy, and one of those being the tendon remodeling and that adaptive response that we get from having that high level of a constant time under tension of the tendon being loaded. Um, and it's funny you bring up that performance thing because there's actually a funny study looking at Olympians have more oral cavities than the average human. Um, and that's probably because differences in pH change in their saliva based on possibly um, stress levels. Stress levels have been correlated to changes in pH levels in your saliva. Now, whether or not you believe how those pH levels change is one way or another, but they've looked at some of the uh, sympathetic glands, sorry, sympathetic nervous system activating some of your saliva glands, which is why you might get dry mouth at times. Huh. Um, if you ever notice, this is purely anecdotal, and I don't know the science behind it, but if you're getting ready for a li heavy lift and you're ready to go, you won't be very uh, saliva heavy in your mouth. Hmm. You're typically fairly dry. If That's for me. I have no science behind that, but I've always thought that maybe it was some sort of a sympathetic drive. Whenever I'm ready to go and I'm going for a PR, I've always noticed that I'm not like um, – I'm, I'm more dry than usual in the mouth, put it that way. Interesting. You know, I'm always looking, outside of sports performance, I am looking for the fountain of youth, right? Like, in some in some extent. <laughs> I, don't, I don't need to live to be 100. But uh, it's interesting, like, looking at, Dan John always used to joke about this. He's like, go to a master's track meet, and if you see a distance runner who looks like they're 70, or they're, they're who looks like they're 80, they're probably only, like, 70. But if you see a sprinter who looks like they're 70, they're probably actually 80, like, like the idea that endurance ages you out or something, which I, I do agree, actually, doing the same repetitive thing over and over and over again. But, like, um, there was some study that was really cool to me. It was, like, longevity amongst <clears throat> different types of track athletes. And it was the people who lived the longest were the high jumpers and the distance runners. But it was really, they were just, like, it just comes down to body, um, their body frame. They probably didn't need a ton of calories. And, it, it, like, kind of like what you're alluding to before a little bit. And so, anyways, I don't know. I'd love to believe fast, which is the fountain of youth, right? Like, I want to be Well, there's a, a high relation between muscle mass and raw longevity. Having less muscle mass puts you at greater risk for mortality. Like, that's why I actually worked at an exercise clinic at Iowa State for two and a half years, and we had an older adult population, and we did power training with them. We had Kaisers, and we did high-velocity power training nice. um, because their type 2 fibers die first, um, and you don't fall slow. Right, you gotta fall. Falls kill people, and you fall fast. So you gotta move fast to catch yourself. I thought it was very forward thinking for an exercise clinic. It wasn't my idea. Yeah. It was uh, Dr. Frankie, who was the head of it at that time. Um, said we train them fast and high and powerful. I was like, oh, this guy's like 85 years old. We had a guy who um, was 95. He uh, ended up having hip surgery and came back six months later to train. It was like the most amazing thing ever because you're just worried someone might die if they go under hip surgery at 95 but he worked his butt off and he was high power rowing when he came back and i was like okay i believe it yeah yeah i want to i want to be doing some serious power output when i'm 80 or 90 i want to be that guy jumping over the three foot bar and uh and just, <laughs> and just crushing it <laughs> um so yeah it's just it's so fascinating with the tendons too like and and I, I remember the first time i really heard about it was uh it was jim snyder at jay DeMeo's uh, central virginia performance and then they also did a podcast he was just talking about how doing like a two-minute isometric hold maybe even body weight only or or similar to extreme isos jay Schrader stuff which i use all the time like religiously i use that stuff and so i mean you could say too and he talked about how the lines of fascia 
got like like straighter when you did that stuff it almost like ironed you or straightened you out because there was this constant line of pull in the the um the area the point of max stretch and so i was like whoa that that seems really cool and then the more i've done extreme isos the more i feel like even though i may not have gotten any stronger like i'll do them for a couple of weeks like really good and it's like my verticals up my sprinting feels better and i wonder how much of that is neuroelectric and how much is on the level of the fascia i'm sure it's a little bit combined but it's always really cool. Like I just really enjoy the effects. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, Max, mm-hmm. before we before we uh, close this one up, I just wanted to ask you: Is there anything? Where can uh, people find you at? Is there anything new you're working on? You want to let us know about? Yeah. Um, well, what I've been working on is I'm working with uh, my business partner Greg. We work with Exergo Technology, and so we develop the G Flight. I'm sure people have seen that. Um, the G Sprint portable technology that can help individuals access sports science um, at an affordable price that's user and coach friendly we're talking about the intent thing and i told greg the first day kind of we were discussing this is the best sports science piece of equipment ever made was the skip it right <laughs> remember the skip it you, oh yeah because I, it, it counted it, yeah it counted, jumps. <laughs> it counted jumps and having that external feedback with no barrier to get to it was so motivational so in all of our devices we have the external display of how high you jumped, what was your ground contact time, what was your RSI, how fast did you run. We obviously have an app with it as well, which I love because I'm a nerd and I love to store all my data. Um, But some people just want that raw feedback. So we've been working on technology, developed uh, for coaches. We're coaches ourselves. And so um, obviously nothing against other devices out there, but we are uh, a little cheaper. It's $400 for a device that can fit in your pocket. Um, I just traveled with it to Brazil and I had it on my carry-on and they, <laughs> they didn't ask any questions. Yeah. I, I can't do that with many other pieces of technology in the sports science world and that's totally okay because some are made for laboratories. We look at ours as an assessment tool, but also like you said, that training tool where you get that objective feedback. Okay, I want to jump higher now. Um, my, <laughs> my girlfriend doesn't uh, she plays volleyball um, kind of with her friends, obviously somewhat competitive, but doesn't really train for jumping, has never measured her jump height, took my G flight and was on a jump program for three weeks that I didn't know about. I was like, what do you do? <laughs> what? Really? She's like, well, it gave me my feedback. And I just saw that firsthand. I was like, that, that's the point that I, I love about it is that feedback aspect. And I'm sure that's why people buy gym awares and Tendo units, right? People love velocity-based training because I move the bar fast. Can I move it faster? Now providing that from the jumps and with the contact times, can I get off the ground quicker? Can I jump higher? Can I run faster? Um, obviously, it's something I'm very passionate about because I'm biased. I help develop it all. Um, and Greg has obviously been the kind of the wizard behind uh, everything. It's been great to work with him. And uh, we hope to kind of develop more and more tech there um, in that regard. So it's kind of my big project I've been working on right now. Um, I've also been working with a great company um, in Brazil, I got to present there with Corplex. And so I give them a shout out because they're kind enough to let me go down there and talk and translate everything in Portuguese for me. So I didn't have to (laughs) handle any of that. So thank you, uh, Bia and Daniel for helping me out there. I'll give you guys a shout out. Really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Sounds like you're up to great stuff, Max. And I do appreciate, I, you know, when the just jump people took away that plyo single contact function, that, that really, that really, that hit home. (laughs) So I'm glad that you're, you're doing some good stuff there, man. Uh, anyways, hey, thanks for being on the show today. I really appreciate Thank it. Thank you, Joel. It's been amazing. Um, you always provide some of the best material out there, so that's awesome.
right, that does it for another show. Thanks for tuning in. Really appreciate your listenership. If you enjoyed this episode or what we're doing with the series, please don't hesitate. Leave us a rating review on iTunes, Stitcher, whatever you're listening to us on. Also, don't forget, visit our sponsor, simplyfaster.com, supplies of high-end training technology. We'll see you guys back next week with another great guest.